The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to episode 76 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. The Pobscast is a collection of weekly connectfulness conversations where we examine how to create deeply restorative ripples of transformation within ourselves and within the world around us. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and mentor to therapist changemakers. Chances are that you or someone that you love has been deeply affected by childhood trauma. My guest, Laura Reagan, is an expert on how childhood trauma affects us throughout our lives. She's also the host of the Therapy Chat podcast, a highly recommended favorite of mine. Laura is a clinical social worker in Maryland, specializing in trauma, attachment, LGBTQ issues, mindfulness, and self-compassion. The CDC's Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, also known as ACEs, is a great place for us to begin broadening our understanding of childhood trauma because it uncovers a link between childhood trauma and the higher risk of health and social problems later in life. We're going to talk a lot about this throughout the show, but what's perhaps the most important to know is that statistics suggest that nearly two-thirds of adults have experienced at least one of these overwhelming experiences, which can include physical assault, assault by one parent to another, alcoholic or imprisoned parents, death of a parent, feeling unwanted, and sexual abuse. And having experienced one of these childhood adverse events can lead to physical and mental health effects later in life, such as anxiety, depression, suicide, substance abuse, relationship problems, and other physical ailments that can contribute to a shorter lifespan, up to 20 years shorter, in fact. The study also shows that early intervention can lead to better outcomes. And so Laura is going to dive deep with us here and share about the different types of interventions that work best and how traumatic memories are held in the body and can affect relationships later in life. Laura says that the transformation effect of healing these childhood traumas is like going from a black and white picture to technicolor with a full, rich range of opportunities and deeply connected relationships. In our conversation, we also address the concepts of isolation versus connection, and we tie it all into the current immigrant crisis involving children and the overall dehumanizing behaviors that are so common in today's society. So with that, here we go. I'm really excited about this episode today. Today, I have with me a friend and colleague, Laura Reagan. Laura, welcome, and thanks for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me, Rebecca. I've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time. I know you have your own podcast, Therapy Chat, and you have talked to so many amazing experts along the way. And you, I really find, are an expert in your own right, especially when it comes to childhood trauma and how it affects us in our lives. Thank you. By the way, let's not forget that you've been one of the experts who I've interviewed. <laughs> that was so long ago. Oh my gosh. Yes, there was that episode, wasn't there? <laughs> yes. Loved that. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to have you here today. Let's dive in and talk a little bit about what exactly childhood traumas are. Like, what are adverse events of childhood? Yeah. So, Talking about childhood trauma, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study is a great way for people to kind of begin to gain an understanding of what that means. And so that's what they call ACEs. And people have been hearing more about it, particularly since Oprah interviewed Dr. Bruce Perry, which I was so happy to have Dr. Perry get his voice out into a more mainstream audience than just therapists or just people who work with children who experience abuse. So adverse childhood experiences are overwhelming experiences that happen during childhood that really impact children at the time. Often it's experienced as a life-threatening thing. And the adverse childhood experiences study looked at how common it is for people to have had those types of experiences in childhood which include things like being physically hit, 
witnessing one of your parents abusing the other parent, having a parent who is an alcoholic or substance abuser, having a family member go to prison, having a parent die, and also things like things that have been added more recently, things like feeling that nobody really was happy to see you or cared that you existed when you were a child. Also, sexual abuse. So any unwanted sexual experience is one of the questions that they asked. And they found that childhood trauma is much more prevalent than people typically realize. How prevalent? Uh, Well, let me tell you exactly how prevalent. What they found in the ACES study is that nearly two-thirds of adults have experienced at least one adverse childhood experience. That's a lot of people walking around this world who have experienced these types of adverse events that might leave an impression upon someone. Yeah. And what it also showed us is that those experiences, once they happen, even if you don't remember them, they don't just really go away. They affect our long-term physical and emotional health. And that's one thing that I really love about the adverse childhood experiences study is that not only did it expose the prevalence of childhood trauma to us, but also the fact that, you know, we often want to, in our culture, say, let something happens, just get over it, put it behind you, stop looking back, stop looking at the past. But when these experiences happen and the trauma isn't processed and resolved, when it occurs, it can affect our long-term physical and emotional health. So, There is higher incidence of anxiety, depression, suicide, alcoholism, other substance abuse problems, as well as problems with relationships, but physical health problems. There are higher rates of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, chronic illnesses like Crohn's disease, IBS. I'm guessing most of the inflammatory stuff would show up there. Yes. And it's basically all of the things that contribute to a shorter lifespan. Based on the more number of adverse childhood experiences someone had, the more likely they are to have a shorter lifespan. And they studied people over time and found that basically some people, there's like a difference of 20 years in how much shorter the lifespan is in someone who's experienced a lot of adverse childhood experiences. Wow. But with that said, as scary as that is to hear, if you are someone who is listening and you're thinking, oh, my dad was an alcoholic, he abused my mom, and he went to jail. I have three. That's, oh, no, like, I'm not going to live a long, healthy life. Well, pretty much everybody I know probably has four or five. And yeah, I know a lot of therapists, and a lot of us therapists have four or five or six. I think I have six but I think I'm going to live a long, healthy life because what I have had to do is say, okay, so these things have happened and those are traumatic experiences. So now what do I do with that? And what the study showed us is that the earlier there's intervention during childhood, preferably, but at any time during your life, you get intervention, which means go to therapy, do something to heal from these experiences, the better the health outcomes are. Can we talk a little bit about what interventions look like, feel like, are like? There's so many different kinds of interventions, I'm imagining. Absolutely. So there's many ways to work with childhood trauma. Personally, I'm a big fan of using bottom-up approaches, which means using therapy approaches that involve the body Mm-hmm. and access the lower parts of the brain first rather than the intellectual parts. So that means like doing things like yoga therapy, sensory motor psychotherapy, EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, brain spotting, expressive arts therapies. So that can be any art therapy, music therapy, dance movement, drama therapy, those kinds of things. And somatic experiencing is another of the body-oriented, bottom-up therapies. 
And there are many others. That is not by any means an exhaustive list. Hakomi method. I certainly don't know all of them, for one. But those things, those types of therapies address trauma that's held in the body, which traumatic experiences that children have are kind of stored in the body and not so much in the verbal memory. And the reason is because children's brains, you know, their brain development, all of our brain development, beginning from birth and in in utero, is from the right brain, which is where the emotion and expressive parts of the brain are. And the left brain comes along later as we get older, which is why children do what they do. They play and they move and they dance and they, you know, use their imaginations. Then when we become adults, it's like, oh, leave all that behind. We have to be serious. We have to plan. We have to be goal focused and responsible and all those things. But so therapies that work with the left part of the brain, the more they keep us out of the places where the trauma is stored. Exactly. So we can't really access it. So more cognitive therapies access the intellectual parts of the brain. And you can learn and understand, but you, without a somatic element to it, a body oriented element to it, it's not possible to access that, you know, stuff that happened when you were two, three, four years old, that a child is not going to have the intellectual capability to describe the way an adult would. I'm curious if you can give us an example of ways that maybe like in an adult, things show up as having been stored in the body. Sure. Well, there are a lot of ways. One way that we can experience in our bodies the trauma that we went through in childhood can be if we have a lot of chronic pain issues or other chronic illness issues. You know, unexplained pains and sensations in the body. Also like dreams where you have a physical reaction in your body to the dream. Sometimes people have dreams that feel like they're awake and they often will talk about it in therapy, not really knowing if they were awake or asleep, but they say, well, I don't think it was real. So it must've been a dream, but it will be, could it be like lucid dreaming? Yeah, and that's what some people would call lucid dreaming, right? But it could be the feeling of like your body being lifted or some sensation in your body that you know is not happening right now, but your body is experiencing it as it is happening. So that can be a way that traumatic memory is held in the body and is expressed in the body. But basically, when people feel that and they have no idea what it could be from because they don't have a memory that they're aware of that attaches to it, they kind of feel like they might be, they wonder, worry that they're going crazy and they don't want to tell anyone. But once you talk about it with a therapist who understands trauma, they'll tell you, oh, you know, wonder if that could be connected to anything that's happened in your past. Maybe you don't know what it is now, but it's common for people to have that type of experience. Now that can be a somewhat scary moment for some to be confronted with something that you don't really know what is happening and yet it for even for that to be normalized. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it can be terrifying. And this, I actually hear a lot from people who have those kinds of lucid dream experiences where they are terrified. They feel full blown panic, but they have no idea why and whatever they might be, I would say remembering that they don't always know consciously that they're remembering, but you know, it's like, all I know is I saw, and it's something like as simple as like, I saw a cat run across the street. That's all I know. Or I saw my cat and he was running towards the street. It's like a Mm -hmm. tiny sliver of a memory, but it's as if your brain is kind of sounding alarm bells and saying something happened and you need to know about it, but you can't have the whole picture so you don't understand what's happening and you just feel like that was horrible let me try to forget about it as soon as I can <laughs> but then it keeps coming back so that's you know back. really common yeah so the key here is that we need to understand that things that happen to us in our childhoods even if they're in a pre-memory kind of pre-verbal state they continue to affect us throughout our lives 
Yes. And the other way that they continue to affect us that's really definitely not apparent to people quite often is in relationships. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So much. I mean, that's what I see every single day in my practice. Yes. Right. So it's like we may notice that there's some kind of pattern that we tend to repeat. Often, I know for myself, I'll tell you, when I was in my early 20s, I was like, after one relationship ended, I was like, no more dysfunctional relationships. I am going to pick a better person next time. But it was like, how will I know if they're a better person? Well, I was just going to say, I had that workout for you, Laura. <laughs> right. Because it wasn't that they weren't a good person, so to speak. It was that, you know, there was a dysfunctional dynamic, an unhealthy dynamic we were playing out. But it was like, this is what I tried to do. Well, the last three people had long hair. So let me have someone who has short hair, you know, or the last three people didn't really have good jobs. Let me find somebody who has a better job. And it's like, that is not enough. You have to (laughs) pick up on what's happening in the relationship. But I couldn't, all I did was reenact the same things where I was trying to get some kind of need met that I was very unaware of. And I was connecting with people who were also trying to get some kind of need met that they were totally unaware of. And then we just did this chaotic dance until we left each other. (laughs) I'm kind of just thinking through some of my own relationships too. And definitely a lot of the people who I see come into my office and I'm thinking about relationships and thinking so often our wounds are attracted to each other. Yeah. Right. And one thing I tell my clients a lot is it's as if we pick the perfect partners, partners who can either stick it to us and keep pouring salt on our wounds and we do the same for them or people who it's almost like we have a spiritual contract to grow with. Mm -hmm. And it's also unconscious. Yeah. So it's like, I'm going to pick someone who's totally the opposite of that last person and not anything like my dad. And of course, you know, (laughs) it's like, seems like they're not, but guess what? You know, the same dynamic tends to, and I'm not putting my dad down. He's great. But you know, it's like whatever little thing needs to get worked through. It's going to show up. That's right. And it's like that Pema Chodron quote. Nothing ever really goes away until it teaches you what you need to learn. Mm, I love that. You know, one thing that I'm kind of sitting here and I'm thinking about right now is that so often the work of relational health, of healing these old carried traumas, is about learning about boundaries. Mm -hmm. So much of that work is about boundaries. And I like to talk about boundaries and that they have two parts. They have the containing aspect and they have the protecting aspect. So... I joke around with my clients sometimes and I start off by thanking them for bringing their skin into the office because if they didn't have it, their guts would have surely left a mess all over my couch. (laughs) So thank you for for that containment. And (laughs) right. And then, you know, also that their skin is, you know, protecting them from whatever bacteria or boogers the person before them who sat on the couch might have brought in. So, you know, they can thank their skin for that. So there is a, that is a boundary. Your skin is a boundary. It's both containing and protecting. And relationally speaking, I think we need both. We need to allow ourselves the vulnerability and the spaces for people to connect to us, but we also need the protections in certain places. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about boundaries too. That's how I understand them. I'm really curious from your perspective, what that work looks like. Yeah, well, I think one of the biggest challenges for myself and for people I work with who are healing from trauma is in terms of boundaries, is that you have to know what you want and what you need to be able to set a boundary. Like you can't just go, well, the boundary for me is this if you don't know what you feel. And so often people I work with who have childhood trauma, especially, you know, what I would call developmental trauma, you know, childhood trauma in terms of not just that you were in a car accident when you were five and it was really terrifying and felt totally out of control and everyone's reliving 
you know, that whenever they go over the bridge, not that, but more like when you were five, you were terrified on the first day of school and your parents said, I don't care, just get over it. Or their parent stayed in bed and you were alone at the bus stop or whatever. Those things where you felt alone, unseen, nobody really understood what you were feeling. That's the really profound and all of the traumatic things that happen. Like if a parent went to prison or if, you know, you witnessed your parent being abused by your other parent, you know, the pain is in that nobody understood how you felt. And the pain is in the isolation. Right. Right. Cause you're alone with it and you feel powerless and nobody knows or is attending to what you need. And as a child, you are helpless in that situation, you know? So what I find is really hard for a lot of my clients who've experienced those kinds of traumas that they don't necessarily identify as traumatic. And it's just how things were in their family. Nobody talked about things. Everybody was kind of on their own. And that's just how it was. Is when I say, what do you want? What do you need? And they will literally say, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I was just sitting with someone before and there was this conversation relationally about how they can repair their relationship. And one partner was like, the only thing I need is sex. Everything else I've got covered. I can do it all myself. And the partner was saying, I need to be able to help you on some of that other stuff. Otherwise, I don't feel safe in this relationship. Yeah, if you won't let me in, I can't have sex with you. I can't feel emotionally safe enough. Yeah. So that question of what do I need? What do I want? Can be so foreign. How can you set a boundary? If you don't know what you want or need, then how can you tell the other person what you don't want or don't need? You know? So how do you teach that? Well, in my practice, the way I work with people is helping them get connected to what they need, what they feel, you know? Because people I work with, typically, they're in their heads, and they're typically smart, high-achieving, successful people who feel alone, unlovable, on the outside looking in, and basically pretty worthless inside. So, you know, they've got all this. It's kind of like these recent people who've died by suicide who have been famous, and everyone's saying, how could they? They had everything. And it's like, money is not everything. Like, achievements, you know, in your work success, educational success, having a nice house, a great car, a family that loves you. If you feel empty inside, all that other stuff doesn't fulfill you. So getting into how to feel things, I know a while back, I think it was episode 62 or so, I talked to Stacy Steinmiller. And we talked about dissociation. Okay. And one of the things I loved about that episode, and I wonder if you could kind of either pick up here or take us somewhere else, is that when Stacy was talking about working with people who are dissociated, she was talking about how she helps them learn to feel by taking them into places that feel calm first. Physically? Well, Sorry, yeah, I she, this episode she, yet. yeah, it's okay. <laughs> she wanted to work with them to like, what makes you feel calm? And they were to say, well, like, I like watching the TV. She'd be like, well, that's not really a thing. Mm -hmm. Like, And so that's going away. Right. That's more going away. So she would get them to do the work of really coming back into themselves and noticing like, okay, you know, what it feels like and being able to tolerate the feeling of like, I don't know, sitting by a brook mm. you know, and, and listening to the birds and, just to stay embodied yeah. in that feeling, in, the, in that feeling, not to take them into the stuff that doesn't feel good mm -hmm. yet, but to start with taking them into the places that feel calm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think she's really great. I know her through Facebook and she's very knowledgeable. So I got to go back and listen to that because every time I hear her say anything, I'm man, she's so smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, dissociation is something that I think she is really championing. She's quite the expert in that. Yes. Area. Yeah. Yes. And, 
dissociation is something that children do to cope with an overwhelming experience. So they can't escape and they can't do anything. They can't protect themselves and they can't protect anyone else. So they have to go away in their minds. And I'm not sure exactly how Stacy was talking about it, but generally the way I see it, and I've learned this through sensory motor psychotherapy is that, you know, we all kind of dissociate at times, you know, daydreaming, getting distracted or numbing with our phone and things like that. But, you know, people who've experienced multiple traumatic events in childhood tend to spend very little time present in their bodies because the body is holding all of those sensations and memories and feelings and it's too overwhelming to be in your body. So you have to spend a lot of time disconnected and intellectualizing, you know, that's a classic defense mechanism that is very effective. So as is comedy. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, and so we do many things to avoid the way we feel and it's kind of a spectrum of dissociation. I was just thinking that there's so many different ways. I was just going to start listing them, you know, even exercise and drinking. And, you know, there's so many different things that people do to get away from you're doing to escape from the way you feel Mm -hmm. and not be present. Yeah. So what you were saying with her example of going to a calm place, you know, what she's describing there, what you're describing in what she said is that just being still and being with, themselves, which can be super triggering. I mean, you want to go to a calm place, but where you may go is to all the chaos you feel in your body. And so it's not that I'm disagreeing with what she's doing, but even that is instructive to the person to say, oh, what is coming up? You know, I often will suggest that people listen to self-compassion guided meditations And when they start listening to it and it says tap into the feeling and try to soften towards it, suddenly they feel panic and they go, oh, I must be doing this wrong and they turn it off. But what they're really doing is accessing the way they feel inside, which is panicky. Ah. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense. I teach a lot of meditation to my clients and I have certain clients who are unable to tolerate it. And it's taken us years to get to the point where, you know, they can do some meditative, mindful breathing just for a few minutes in my office with me present. And I think you're naming exactly why. Yes. Because once they feel, the feeling is so overwhelming, that's why they can't stay in their bodies. Mm-hmm. And one thing I have to say, I'm not um, trying to give a plug for sensory motor psychotherapy, but it is like so incredible. And you know, already not knowing- trying to give a plug, but plugging. <laughs> well, I just have to say, because being someone who already had a lot of trauma training and a lot of experience working with people with trauma in sensory motor psychotherapy training, what I've been learning, what I learned in level one is just how much more often my clients were dissociating than I recognized, even though I was, I felt like I was pretty good at recognizing when people were dissociating. But when I did that level one training, I started to notice it probably like, you know, I don't know where I would have noticed it. Yeah. Where I might've noticed it nine months in, I noticed it one month in, you know? Right. And once I notice it, I can help them notice it. And once they start to notice it, then they can become more aware. And when they're more aware, then I teach them. So, okay. Your child was asking for something and you felt like you just needed to get on Facebook at that moment and it was too much. Your child's needs were too much for you. What were you feeling? You know, and try to help them like catch what it is that makes them need to zone out. And the more they can be aware when they do it first, then think about what was happening before they needed to go away from themselves and their child in that example, then the more they can say, okay, so I was triggered because my child was saying they were hungry and they were whining. And I, now I remember my mom would always tell me not to whine or, you know, I would be sent to my room and I would just be given an apple for dinner because I was whining too much or whatever. And it's like, you don't always connect those things, but it 
continually, I mean, this is what people say once they start doing trauma therapy with me is they'll say, there's so many triggers. They're constant. They're everywhere. And I'm like, exactly. And that's why it's so hard to stay present. There are so many triggers. They're constant. They're everywhere. It's hard to stay present. And (laughs) the work lies in learning how to regulate those triggers. Right. First, you have to know what they are. Then you have to pause and say, what do I need right now? How to help myself? Laura, if I can take you back for a minute. Sometimes as we're learning to recognize what they are, another one pops up and then another one pops up and then another one pops up. And at some point, if we're living in a space of different triggers popping up and they get complicated because they overlap each other, there's also just some skills at some point that you work with, I'm sure, in there to help people slow it down and regulate themselves when those triggers are popping up so that they can attend to them. So they can sit with the triggers. Yeah. I mean, well, for regulation, breath is the best thing. But like you were saying, for some people, it can be really hard to tolerate that. So, you know, depending on the situation and what the person feels like they need, you know, what, and also what they're telling me, like, you know, hmm, sounds like maybe do you think that it was like an anxious feeling, you know, and then I'll give them some ideas for how they can, you know, cope with that in the moment. I think it's like teaching people to be more mindful in their lives in general throughout the day creates more space Mm -hmm. so that you have the opportunity to notice, Oh, something's happening. I'm feeling something. Yes. A lot of mindfulness teachers talk about it. Like you're building a muscle. Mm -hmm. And it's through the building of that muscle that you are more prepared for the, the twists and turns that life throws at you. Right. It creates more space between whatever happens and your reaction. Oh, gosh, you just took me right. Okay. So one of my absolute favorite quotes, I'm sure a lot of my listeners know this, is a Viktor Frankl quote from Man's Search for Meaning. And it's amazing how this comes into almost every single conversation that I have on this podcast. And that's that, you know, between the things that happen to us, the stimuli, and our reaction to the stimuli, there lies a space. And in that space lies our freedom and our power to choose our response. Right. So mindfulness helps. But one of the problems with trauma is that because the brainstem is the part that's reacting, you know, it's primal. It's primal. And a lot of times there's less choice involved because, you know, when you see that tiger walking towards you, you're running away and you're like safely away from the tiger before you go, wow, that was just a tiger. Oh my God. What's he doing here? Right. And that's why, you know, depending on the amount of trauma that one has endured and the stage of development that they may have been at while they were enduring it and the kinds of supports that might have been in place for them to sit with that in the recovery periods or not. Right. All of it is what ends up being held in the body. And when we then are sitting with an adult who has some complicated history of trauma that hasn't really been metabolized, in their body, it can show up in that feeling of being totally out of control. Right. Like, for example, if you are going to pick up your kid from school and somebody turns out in front of you and causes you to have to slow down when you were on your path, you know, what a lot of people call cutting you off in traffic. Mm -hmm. And you have like a response that is, if is, is like road rage you know, of course, everyone's going to judge you. What's your problem? Road rage, you're bad, you're a jerk, you know, cool it. But the person is reacting that way because, you know, for them, it felt like their life was in danger. And they don't necessarily consciously recognize that. They just react to it. Mm-hmm. And then they can't really tell you why they did what they did. You know, but one of the ways that you can identify that you may be impacted by past traumatic experiences you had in childhood. So maybe you're listening and you're saying, yeah, well, those things did all happen to me that she mentioned, but I don't think I have, you know, really been impacted by them. I mean, I'm fine, you know, but then 
when I said that about road rage, you're like, oh yeah, every time I'm driving my kids to school, I'm screaming and my blood pressure goes up. You know, when normal stressors take you from zero to 60 in, you know, 0.5 seconds, that could be because of those past traumatic experiences you've had. So if you already know you've had the experiences and you're questioning whether it's really affected you, but people in your life are like, you need anger management or, you know, why don't you just take it easy, chill, you know, things like that. That's not really being able to regulate yourself and reacting to things, not because you want to, not because you're a jerk, but because you have some unresolved stuff that's getting tapped into and you're not aware of it. So this unresolved stuff, it affects us in our relationships. It affects us in our everyday. For some, it affects the ability to hold a job. It it affects different ways, but it most certainly affects our relationships. Mm -hmm. So can we shift gears a little bit and talk about what children actually need to develop into adults who are capable of having healthy relationships? Yeah. I mean, I would say in a very basic way, what children need is for the people they depend on for caregiving when they're children to basically be attuned to the children's emotions and to teach them how to express the way they feel and how to cope with their feelings. And it's basically that. They need adults in their lives who recognize that they have wants and needs and try to help them meet at least the needs And when they can't get the wants met, how to cope with it. And that it's probably even important not to get all the wants met, right? I'm thinking of the child's impulsive brain. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. I see somebody with that I want. And just thinking of my own children, how important that limit setting and the saying no is in in an empathic way. Like, no, you can't. Not in a disempowering way. Right. Right. And I think this is one of the things, you know, my mentor, Terry Real, talks about all the time. He talks about how, you know, traumas happen in two different ways. They happen in the disempowerment and they also happen in false empowerment. So it's making somebody feel like they're better than they actually are. Or it's, it's in that disempowering kind of shame producing place. Yeah. So will you say a little more about that false empowerment? Like, how does that show up in like parenting? It sounds like it would be like the whole thing where, you know, you tell people they're doing great when they didn't try their hardest and stuff. Yeah, it also shows up in the form of like parentifying a child. Oh. Right? It, like a role reversal. Oh, yeah. Right? Um, or putting one child like on a pedestal and mm-hmm. disempowering another. I got it. Making one child into a scapegoat and the other one into the hero. Yeah, I often talk about how, you know, when people say like, well, it wasn't bad for me because I was my dad's favorite. Mm. It's like, so then it's like, you can't lose that title, you know? So it's like the one who's the favorite suffers too. Yeah. So there shouldn't be a favorite. (laughs) But you know what you were talking about, that parentified child? I was talking about that today, but I talk about it often with my clients I've come up with this like analogy that just resonates so well for me because I hope I don't make it sound too complicated when I say it, but it's like when I think of a parentified child, I often think of a family where the primary caregivers for whatever reason were not able to meet the children's needs. And so maybe the parent was depressed. Maybe they had a substance abuse problem. Maybe a parent died. You know, maybe, maybe children just had to do grown-up roles before they should. I've seen it a lot in domestic violence situations where mm-hmm. one parent is abusive and the other parent is disempowered to the point that the child is protective and taken care of and parentified. Right. Yeah. Right. So in some ways, they may be trying to take care of the abusive parent to keep them from abusing the other parent. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, they may be taking care of the abused parent when they've been victimized and they can't cope. But really all that child's trying to do is get their own needs met. It's like, let me make sure you're okay so you can give me dinner, you know? But they don't have that conscious thought. What they have the conscious thought of is I'm responsible for them. So 
I often see, and I want you to think about this. Tell me what you think. But you know the inner critic. I mean, we talk about the inner critic a lot. I hear people saying when they're talking about their experiences and they're going, it's stupid, I know, but I've, but this happened and I shouldn't have done this. And, you know, and it's like they're really being really hard on themselves for things that objectively they were doing when they were eight, seven, six. They did not know better, but they think they should have known better. And I think of it as if you see a little girl who's put her mom's high heels on and she's pretending to be a grown-up. And in her mind, she sees herself as this glamorous princess wearing these high heels being so grown-up. But any adult could look at her and say, that's a little girl playing dress-up. And I feel like the child who is parentified is doing the things that an adult would do, but with the understanding of a child. And they think they have the understanding of an adult, but they don't. So when they look back... They still see it through that child's lens and they're critical of themselves for what they didn't realize and what they should have done differently. But really they only thought they should know better, but they didn't because they were just a child. I am in agreement and I would take it a step further. And that step is just that they're, without the guidance, without somebody helping them to develop that sense of self-esteem, that sense of good enoughness, that sense of I don't have to be perfect all the time, that sense of I can hold myself in warm regard while I fall on my face. That's perhaps the piece that was missing, that guidance right there. And so without that, this person grows up falsely empowered, right? And they're thinking that they're capable of things that they're not really capable of because this goes back to the trauma of neglect or the thing that they didn't get. In this case, what they didn't get was that guidance. Yeah. And I'll add to that too about the guidance is that what they need, what that child needs is someone who says, no, no, honey, it's okay. You got peanut butter all over the counter, but that's all right. It's hard to really get that peanut butter just on the bread and you're only five. It's okay to make a mistake. You know, somebody to basically tell them, you're not an adult, you're a child, and you don't have to be an adult. I mean, I've talked to, I've worked with a lot of children, too. And you see children who are like, oh, my mommy's sick, and, you know, so I have to do all the cleaning in the house, and, you know, I have to make sure the house is clean so mommy won't be sad. And it's like, you're a child. It's like, it's great to help. You need to play. Right. (laughs) It's great to help, but you're not responsible for mommy. Mommy can be the adult. And you're the child, you know, and even like in the therapy with children who are parentified like that, the child tries to be so responsible. And it's like, look, this is your time to just be a kid. I'm the adult here and I'll keep us both safe, Mm -hmm. you know? And that is so much the work of therapy is giving clients the opportunity and the time and the space to sit into it and have that moment of witnessing, of recognition, of saying like, you know what, the way that it happened, it wasn't okay. And it doesn't have to continue to be. And if you can have that moment of repair, of recognition, of witnessing, then how can that ripple forth into other moments in your life? Yeah. Yeah. But I will say again that even for now in therapy, when you're 45 years old and your therapist is like, you don't have to take care of me right now. It can be like, oh, because it's so, it can be, like the shame that, you know. I find that it's really interesting though, that like not so much about taking care of or not taking care of the therapist. The client shouldn't really ever have to be in that role of taking care of the therapist. They I don't, I, but sometimes that's. <laughs> I, I know it. I know it happens and it plays out. I yeah. get that. But there, there's another piece in here too. And that's just, you know, that, that, that gentle confrontation and holding of that wasn't okay. What happened to you? That wasn't okay. I'm sorry that you experienced that. It shouldn't have had to be that way. So often when these traumas are developmental, the child living through it, the adult who has grown with it, the way that they've been metabolized up until that point is that something in them was wrong. Right. And they don't necessarily see that the thing that was wrong was external to them, was 
the way maybe the way they were treated or some and so it's that moment of pulling it together and witnessing that yes no i mean that is a hugely reparative experience i a hundred percent agree and i'm actually just saying that sometimes even that is hard yeah because it's the witnessing oh my gosh Mm -hmm. my needs really weren't met and that is like no i can't my parents were good to me like but my childhood was really, you know, it's like it could just be hard for people to allow that compassion for themselves and that softening towards that really vulnerable child whose needs weren't met. And that can be like going back to what Stacey Steinmiller was talking about, a moment where the person just associates because it's like, wow, I can't tolerate this. It's too painful. So I'm only saying that because people who are listening might be even having that kind of conflict as they're listening. Like, Oh my gosh, my needs weren't met. No, yes, they were, you know, and it's like, what's happening. It's so confusing. So all of that is part of, you know, the way trauma kind of protects us by allowing us to avoid touching the most painful parts until we're really ready to go there. So it's kind of like this gradual process of like, Oh, wow you know, oh, wow, I'm, whoa, oh, now that, you know, and it's like, it's just a hard thing to do, but so, so worth it. So can we talk about the other side? When people start doing the work and they start being able to name their wants and needs and set those boundaries, what do you see? What's the transformation effect? Well, I would say at first, people are scared to say what they want and need, and they're very afraid to set boundaries with the people in their lives, and it takes a lot of practice and fear of retribution, especially if those people really were never safe to begin with, and they're trying to negotiate how to have a continued adult relationship with the person who is continually re-traumatizing them or even re-victimizing them. So... You know, there's a lot of practicing and trying and trying different things and seeing how it feels, and that's part of the growth process. But I can tell you, when you talk about transformation, I feel like it's, do you know the movie The Wizard of Oz? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you know the part where it goes when they get to the Emerald City and everything's suddenly in color? That's, That's what it's like. It's like going from this black and white way of thinking, this you know, very restricted way of living. To living in Technicolor. To living in Technicolor with a full, rich range of opportunities to feel, to, you know, just experience awe and wonder and joy and curiosity and compassion and deeply connected relationships that sometimes it's like, oh gosh, I don't even know if I can tolerate this. It feels so good, but it's you know, if you stay with it, it just gets better and better and better. So I can say that I've experienced myself and I've witnessed so many hundreds of people who have healed from their traumatic experiences and how it changes. I always say this, you don't just feel as good as you imagine you would feel if this thing had never happened. And this is what I think post-traumatic growth is. It seems like you feel better than you could have felt even if the thing had never happened. Better than you could have imagined. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Because, because now you also have resilience in the there. pain, right? You have this growth and wisdom where you're like, I understand so much. And it just, it's like, oh, I didn't know I could understand this much. And it feels great. I feel everything. I'm thinking of it kind of like rehabbing an injury. You know, like I have twisted my ankle. I've gotten into some bad ankle twists and injuries. And then in the rehab, when I've gone back out and I've run a race after that, not only does it feel good because the rehab was good, but the accomplishment is that much greater. Yeah. And maybe what you strengthened that wasn't strong before you twisted the ankle Mm -hmm. is now made you stronger than you were before you twisted it. Right, because there was probably something there that was unseen. Yes. And it's in that thing that put me at risk. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now I've I've gotten everything stronger. Laura, is there anything else we want to talk about? Because I think that so much of this conversation also 
we're talking about isol- the isolation of trauma. We're talking, I think before we started, we were talking about connection and the importance here of you know, the, the dichotomy between isolation and connection, between trauma and growth or health. That There's something about connection here that I think we need to touch on. Yeah. Well, you know, going back to when we were talking about having had those adverse experiences, I want to say for people who are listening to this and are curious about the adverse experiences study, you can take the test that asks you about the adverse experiences you may have had and find out what your score is. And we can include a link in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. But they've now added in, you know, a resiliency measure. And basically that is, okay, so one of your parents died when you were a child, which is a horrible trauma for a child. Or let's say your brother went to prison and your surviving parent was abusing substances and maybe living in poverty too, because that's also one of the questions. But then they ask you about resiliency factors. And I don't have memorized what the resiliency questions are, but I know it relates to things like people in your life who supported you, who took care of you, who helped you, guided you, like you're talking about set limits, you know, people who took an interest in you, valued you, and those kinds of things. And those factors offset the impact of the trauma. So, you know, we're not in a vacuum. We're not just a person who was born and then all these things happen, these bad things, without any good things ever happening. I mean, that's not real. Everybody has some good things to happen. But what really matters in terms of how you are impacted long-term by traumatic experiences you had in childhood is, let's say, you know, one of your parents died. When they died, who else was there? And how did they attune to you? How did they meet your needs? Did they understand how you were feeling and help you with it? Maybe the surviving parent was so much in grief themselves that they couldn't be attuned to how you felt, but then they took you to therapy. And then the therapist started recommending that the other parent got therapy. And then you guys started doing family therapy. And from that, there was all this healing that happened. You know, it didn't change that you lost the other parent, but there was some repair that took place. And so it's not just did this bad thing happen, but who attended to what you needed after the bad thing happened? And did they help you? And did you feel alone or did you feel supported? You know, this is bringing up some current day stuff for me. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about what's happening in this country in America today and how the administration has been separating migrant families. And though that practice may have halted for the time being, families still are not... Those families are still separated. They're still, they're still, there's over 2,000 families that are separated. And they're, they're far-reaching. They've separated these kids far and wide from their families. I know that there's a child that's being detained in my community, and they were picked up in Texas, and their mother's been moved around a lot on the West Coast. So we're tracking them and trying to see what they're in our community. So we're trying to see what kind of influences we can have at least to get mom to be able to talk to the kid on the phone, you know, talking about these resiliency measures and what's in place. And this feels like an egregious abuse of power to me, you know, as a mandated reporter, who do we report this type of stuff to when it's the government that's, you know, causing these traumas. And, and I think these traumas ripple far and wide. They're going to have large effects, obviously, on the family, the 2,000 or so families that are affected, but they're also, all of us are witnessing this. And I think there's a lot of implications here. So I'm just curious if we can open up this conversation around childhood trauma and resiliency and connection and community and isolation and the different ways that we respond relationally and help metabolize trauma just to what we're all bearing witness to right now and what's happening in the world. Yeah. There's so many things to say about what you just said. (laughs) I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is that if we feel like we want to turn away and we want to say that's really doesn't matter. It's not my problem. I just don't want to deal with this or they did something to deserve it that means that something in us is getting touched that brings up uncomfortable feelings and we're avoiding it just like 
what I was saying before about how trauma protects you from those painful feelings. So that's one. Also, thinking about even, you know, I know you have young children, and my children are in college, but of course they're still people and they have feelings. But for little children, when they're hearing about this, you know, and they're like, Mommy, why did they get taken away from their parent? Is that going to happen to me? That's what they're going to think. They may have empathy for the child, but what they're also thinking is, am I in danger? And so as a parent, it would be easy to be like, oh, let's not talk about that. Or, you know, many ways to just avoid the feelings that the children are having, because maybe again, it brings up feelings for us and we don't know how to deal with our own feelings. So we just push it away. And I think this is another interesting conversation here because this is also touching on privilege. Um, oh, yeah. The difference between being a white person, a white family in, in this country today versus being a person of color versus being a Hispanic person or a person of who has migrated here from Central America or pretty much from anywhere that isn't Caucasian. Right. Overall, this conversation is about sitting with the discomfort of being a human <laughs> and not turning away from it, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's what this conversation is exactly about. Being a human is hard. Yeah, it is. But I mean, let's see. What other option do we have? No, I think that the more we get distanced from our own pain, it allows us to abuse and mistreat other people. And so I think when you talk about what's happening on a societal level, I think there are so many people who are detached and disconnected from their own pain who are willing to say, so what? Who cares? Yeah, everybody's got problems. I can't worry about this. I've got more important things to worry about. Making money. I just got to get more and more and more and more money, more money, more money. I think you just named it. Money, power. And why do we want that so much? So that we can keep ourselves there and keep others down. Yeah, but really, you know, money is like security. People want to feel safe. It's the same thing. It's like all humans are just moving towards their own survival and trying to be safe. But when you feel like you have to hurt other people so you can be safe, you've gotten disconnected from your own humanity and you need to pause and look inward. Uh. This is a call to reconnecting to your humanity. It's a call to reconnecting to the parts of yourself that you've cut off because it hurts too much to feel. Yeah. It starts right here with each of us. And we have to, you know, really stay present to what we feel all the time and don't be distracted by, you know, my husband says the, um, what is it, from the Roman times, it's like the bread and something that they would do in the, during like the gladiator games, they would throw bread to people and stuff. And it's like, you know, keeping them entertained to keep them disconnected from what's really happening. <laughs> there are so many pieces of bread being thrown at all of us all the time. I mean, this world that we live in, it is, it is just like, have a bite of this, have a bite of this, have a bite of this. Yeah. How distracted are we all? I know. It's no wonder that people just feel like they're floating through life and they don't even know what's going on. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's more important than ever right now for us. You know, I feel like we're at a time where we need to make a decision. Like, what do you think that decision is? Well, it's like, who are we as a country? I think it's bigger than our country. I think it's about who are we as humanity. I think, you know, I'm watching that this is not just happening here in America anymore. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that, you know, the constant wars, like, it's not inevitable. These wars, these constant wars and power struggles are serving to give power to some people at the expense of everyone else. That is not the way that it has to be. I was saying, I'm going to say something sounds, might sound controversial, but, you know, are we trying to provoke like a war with Mexico so that we can like justify some big, you know, military response, which enriches some people very, very much in the billions and billions. Yeah. 
And, you know, I think there's a lot of different theories floating around like that. I've, I know that I've concocted some of my own in my own head. Um, I don't know how far they actually go, but I think that there's, there's a lot of theories happening right now that, that aren't so far off from that. They might include different countries. They might have different things. But what a lot of them seem to come back to is that a small few, their pockets get lined. Right. And the expense is paid, you know, by a larger mass. Yeah, and we're both social workers, so we were trained, follow the money, right? Who profits? Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that we really are trying to provoke a war with Mexico, but like, you know, these things don't happen, again, in a vacuum. No. There's consequences for everything. There's, there's always consequences. For every action, there's a reaction. You know, that's, that's basic science. Yep. And I think we need to be mindful in all of our relationships, whether we're talking about on a political worldwide stage or we're talking about person to person, you know, sitting at the dinner table or putting our kids to bed at night. We need to be mindful of the attention we're giving to these relationships. Yeah, exactly. It's all connected. We're all connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I can't separate out these pieces anymore. It's so interesting for me, the way that the seemingly political stuff interweaves with the family stuff, family stuff becomes political stuff, becomes familial. It's all the same relational dynamics. It's all the same kind of trauma histories. It's all the same kind of interventions needed everywhere. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about what you're saying. It's like, we are an individualistic culture. And I, me, me, me. Right. And, you know, and that is life in isolation, you know, not in acknowledging the fact that we are relational beings. We are all connected and we live as humans with connection. We, you know, we're wired for connections. And there are other cultures some colleagues I know talk often about the we cultures that they are present from. And I know Daniel Siegel talks about the we mm-hmm. and slash we, we, <laughs> you know, so there, there are other ways of being in the world. Mm-hmm. If you think about it over the past, what, 300 years or probably going back a lot longer than that, but the individualistic cultures, mm-hmm continually stay in war. Yes, they do. You know, airing right before this episode, there's an episode with politician Brandy Brooks, who's running for office, um, actually not too far from you in Maryland. Oh, really? And, yeah. I don't know that name. Um, I, I think she's in Maryland. Shoot, I hope she is. Okay, if she's not, let's edit that out. But <laughs> Brandy Brooks, she's uh, running for office. I, you know, will be watching the polls to see if today, actually, if, if she gets her seat. But I'm so enamored with her. But one of the reasons that I'm so taken by her is because what she talks about is relational politics. She talks about how we need to relate, how everything relates to each other, how infrastructure and the way that the streets are built relate to how people get around, relate to who gets to talk to whom. And all of it is part of the bigger picture. And I just love the message that she shares. Yeah, that is so true. I mean, again, nothing is unintentional when you look at the way that like housing projects are set up. So there's like one way in and one way out. And I mean, where the funds in any city are designated to be spent, you know? I mean, look at Baltimore. Yeah. They, they get a ton of money for development, and it all goes into the places that the tourists come and the places that the middle to upper class white people live, and the rest just ignored, just completely neglected. Yeah, it's so interesting when we actually focus in and look at it. It, it hurts, right? It doesn't feel good to look at. Fix something if you won't face what it is. Right. And I think that's what this is really a call to. It's a call to both how to sit with our own traumas, but also how to, on a larger scale, begin the work of sitting with the trauma that this country is now facing and has caused. It has actually been facing for hundreds of years, but finally it's like really seemingly coming to a head now. I hope it's coming to a head finally. Yeah, I mean, 
I don't like the way things are at all, but if it creates change, positive change, change that really helps the people who've been marginalized and disenfranchised for centuries, then it'll all be worth it. Yeah. Laura, I want to really thank you for joining us today and for talking about all of these interconnected webs of understanding first what trauma is and how it occurs and how it happens and what kind of events in one's life can cause that, but then bringing it back into our relationships and our everyday and how we heal it and finally into this crazy chaotic world we're living in and how it plays out here too. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I want to also just let people know where to find you. I'll give you my podcast website is therapychatpodcast.com and everything else I'm doing kind of branches off from there. Thank you. And I really recommend Laura's podcast. Thank you. Thanks. I'm so grateful for today's discussion and I would as always love to hear your feedback. So do drop me a line at practiceofbeingseen at gmail.com and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or find me on social media at Popscast. And if you'd love to learn more about my relationship therapy practice or intensive couples private retreats in New York, go to connectfulness.com. If you're an instigator of change who wants to dive into deeper connection with all of your parts, then there's a link to click in the show notes to learn more about working with me one-on-one. And if you want to help sponsor this podcast, one of the best ways to do that is to join me in our online discussion groups. We meet online the last Thursday of the month through September 2018, and we're journeying together in remembering who we are, what we're made of, and why we're here. Go to practiceofbeingseen.com slash wildwoman to learn more. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the amazing behind-the-scenes support of Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Farris Jr. and Sr., produced by Kidney Stone Studio. I hope that you enjoyed the show and that you'll join me next week for another episode of The Pobscast, brought to you by Connectfulness. <laughs>